Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Um, So to start, could you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, my name is John Johnson, and I've uh, lived here in California virtually my entire life. And I came to UCSB um, 50 years ago and was an undergraduate, got my bachelor's degree, uh, at UCSB. I then went off and did other things for about six, seven years. Uh, ended up being an archaeologist working for the Forest Service. And uh, that made me realize that I really wanted to go back and, and pursue a, my graduate degree. I entered in a master's program at UCSB, which at that time they had, uh, and then realized that uh, I really wanted to go for a PhD. And so after I completed my MA, they let me into the PhD program. And I then completed my uh, PhD in anthropology at UCSB. And a couple of years before I finished my dissertation, uh, there was a job opening at the Natural History Museum as curator of anthropology. And they appointed me as an acting curator for a couple of years until I completed the PhD. And then uh, I've worked there at the museum ever since. So for 35 years, I've worked at the uh, Natural History Museum as curator of anthropology. And uh, that's my background. Um, About 17 years ago, 18 years ago, I was invited to teach a course at UCSB on California Indians. And so I've, uh, this year I'm taking a break because of COVID, but for 17 years, I've taught an annual course on California Indians, and, and they appointed me adjunct professor of anthropology. So I, I have an adjunct professorship there at UCSB. Well, thank you for that introduction. It sure is a pleasure to have another UCSB alumni on the podcast. And it's really awesome that, you know, you you did your whole academic career virtually at UCSB, and now you get to teach there. Um, I'm sure it's kind of, it's been a fast, I'm sure it's been very fascinating to kind of, um, come back, see the university change and morph throughout the years, you know, new faculty coming in, and then obviously tons of new students. Um, So what did you do your dissertation research on? So when I was in the Forest Service, I was uh, looking at doing archaeological reconnaissance in in different parts of the backcountry, the Santa Barbara backcountry, and I got all over 
the mountains and the backcountry uh, doing this, these archaeological surveys. And I got to wondering, okay, what about the people who lived here? You know, uh, what were the names of their villages? You know, um, what can we say about them? And so I began to get interested in the mission records that of the people who were baptized from the villages in the Santa Barbara region. And so that then became my dissertation research. I initially was interested in comparing the what the evidence from the mission records was for intervillage interaction, you know, who was marrying whom, you know, and and looking at the network of, of social interrelationships among the different Chumash towns and villages. And so um, I was going to compare that then to archaeological data on trade and exchange. Okay, that was my initial idea of what my dissertation was going to be about. I ended up just doing a dissertation on Chumash social organization. So I looked at marriage and family patterns of Chumash Indians at the very outset of the colonial period. So as reflected by the evidence in the mission records, but I also then looked at ethnographic records as well, the ethnographic research of John Harrington. And I went to the Smithsonian Institution to study his papers because at that time they were not available on microfilm, which came out in the 1980s. And then more recently they're available online. But uh, at that time you had to go to the Smithsonian to do research with his papers. And so that I did spent several weeks there in Washington DC doing that. I'm sure was eye-opening and very interesting. I've had had the chance to both visit the Smithsonian and we had someone on from the Smithsonian. It's such such a just enormous institution. Yeah, so I worked in the National Anthropological Archives, which at that time were in the basement of the Natural History Museum. And now the National Anthropological Archives are uh, outside in Suitland, Maryland is where they're located. But uh, uh, anyway, I, w I was, uh, it was very interesting. And I also looked at some of the uh, collections, the archaeological collections that had come to California from the late 19th century that were some of the very first archaeology in California was done here in the Santa Barbara region. And those collections are at the National Museum of Natural History or part of their collections. That's wonderful. So since conducting your research and um, your dissertation, you've really become an expert in California archaeology and Native uh, and California Native Americans. Uh, in particular, you've done a lot of work with the Chumash, which you were mentioning. Um, just in case any of our listeners aren't aware, that is a Native American tribe that is local to the Santa Barbara area, uh, also as well as the Channel Islands, so kind of the general uh, geography. And um, could you explain some of the work you've been doing more recently uh, studying the Chumash? Well, uh, I've been working on a number of different um, research projects. I've become more of a, a general anthropologist, you know, not just focused on archaeology, although I do archaeological research, but also, um, as I've said, eth ethnographic records, you know, the cultural anthropology of California Indians and also uh, biological anthropology. I've, I've been engaged and still am engaged in DNA studies of California Indians to look at a genetic prehistory of California. And uh, 
Also, I've collaborated with linguists. So I've looked at anthropological linguistics of uh, this region. And so all of those, uh, I'm sort of, sort of, I've done research in the four fields, traditional fields of anthropology, uh, those four fields, archeology, span cultural anthropology, biological anthropology and linguistics. And um, so currently uh, what I'm doing is I'm looking at uh, mission record data on uh, the impacts of European disease on uh, California Indians. So that's, that's one project I'm working on. I'm also um, working on a getting out a translation of some early missionary documents about describing um, the interaction of the missions and California Indians. And uh, a third thing that I'm working on is a study of, it's kind of different here, but the study of whales uh, oh. and, and the importance, cultural importance of whales not only among the Chumash, but I'm focused on the Chumash, but also on other Pacific cultures along the west coast of North America. And, and then finally, there's, I'm doing some genetic. Yeah, that all sounds very interesting, uh, especially the, the stuff on the whales. I know um, my stepmom is a geneticist. She does a lot of work with um, humpback whales and dolphins. And just in general, it's so fascinating to see, but particularly culturally, how significant uh, maritime resources, and I'm sure, you know, in this case, uh, probably the, the blubber pl played um, a, a role in what they were utilizing. Um, I look forward to hearing more about that. Does your mother, um, I have a question for you about, yeah. does your mother have any recommendations about literature on, on, on nutritional value of, of cetacean, you know, meat, <laughs> you know, especially. I am more than happy to ask to, uh, to text her and ask her. I'm, I'm not sure because I know what she does. She does a lot of work like as well in French Polynesia um, during the summer when the whales are down there. So I, I, I can definitely ask her if she has any, um, what stretch of the coast, you said it's the Santa Barbara area, but what is kind of the furthest region you're going? Well, uh, several years ago, I, out of the blue, I got an email from um, Korea. Mm. <laughs> they were having a whole conference on whales depicted in rock art. Mm. Asked me if, if I would talk about that subject. And I thought, well, I know that, you know, sites that have depictions of sales, uh, whales and cetaceans, and, and also Chumash had whale effigies, little whale effigies that they um, carved. And so I can talk about that subject, but then when I told them, okay, I'll, I'll come, I, you know, I'll travel to Korea, <laughs> you know, they have, a, they have an all expenses paid um, trip to participate in this conference. And it was, it was a wonderful conference and, and so I said, yes. And then they said, oh, by the way, we understand that there's rock art involving whales on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Mm. There's rock art on Kodiak Island involving whales. And could you cover those topics too? <laughs> and, and then I knew about rock paintings depicting whales in Baja California and also in um, as far south as Acapulco on the coast. So all of a sudden my, my research on this extended 
you know, from Alaska to Acapulco. And I, um, but since that time, I've, I've done additional work. I've looked at mythology. I've looked at rituals, uh, ceremonies involving um, whales. I've looked at whale hunting on the Northwest coast in Alaska. Uh, they didn't hunt whales around here, but they did use stranded whales that came ashore. Mm. And they used the, the bones from the whales for different purposes. And uh, it was actually a big deal because when a whale washes ashore near your village, you own it. You're, if it's in your territory, you own it. And that's a big, that can be, feed everybody for months, right? You know, just mm -hmm. stranding. So that's why I'm interested in the nutritional value, you know, to find out a little bit more about that. But yeah. um, anyway, those are the that's kind of an overview of, of the research that I've been involved in. I uh, I definitely know. I bet that the, the mythology and the legend is very rich because I know the Chumash have such such a rich storytelling um, history. And I did a, a a research paper on their connection with the swordfish, uh, which was very very enlightening. I really really enjoyed learning about uh, the way that they use them and the ritual dances that the, uh, that the, of course now I can't remember, um, the, the, not shamans, but they were like the swordfish. What do you happen to know the swordfish? Yeah. Did you read our article about the Chumash and the swordfish? Is that one of your- Oh my gosh. <gasps> Wait, yes. It's called the Chumash and the swordfish. The Chumash believe that all the creatures on land had their counterpart in the ocean. Sardines were the counterpart of lizards on land, right? The barracuda, which is a long, narrow fish, its counterpart was gopher snake on land. You know, the lobsters, their counterpart was the Jerusalem crickets, you know, that you you find in your garden and on land. I, I picked one up last week on the floor of my garage and let <laughs> go outside. But there, and the counterpart of the swordfish were human beings. They were the human beings and the swordfish were equivalent, one in the ocean realm and the other in the terrestrial realm. And uh, so the swordfish were very important. They And the Chumash attributed the stranding of the whales to the swordfish driving them ashore. Okay, so we our hypothesis was that the swordfish shamanism that were present among the Chumash was partly a response to influencing those whales, you know, influencing the swordfish to bring them sustenance. And um, that article was, was co-authored by three of us, uh, Dr. DeMorris Davenport, who is a work, he was a professor of biology, but he also taught in the College of Creative Studies there at, at UC Santa Barbara. He's no longer living, but uh, Dr. Davenport, um, came up with the idea for the article. So he's the first author. Which I believe is why I didn't put it together because when yeah. you said Davenport, I definitely cited that, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I think I would have remembered citing uh, your name. That's, that's so, it was a really um, fascinating, fascinating. I also grew, I grew up in the Santa Barbara area. So like growing up, we did uh, the Rainbow Bridge as a play. And so I'm, I'm really lucky that I've been able to be immersed in that really, really rich culture. Um, since I was younger, I think I, was in that play in like the third grade, <laughs> but it was so cool to learn that legend. 
So um, moving on, I want to ask you about your work that you've done writing and producing on the project Six Generations, which um, recounts the story of a Chumash family in Santa Barbara from the time of the founding of the mission until present day. So could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. Well, when I was sitting there doing the research for my dissertation in the Mission Archive Library, uh, that's where I did most of my research of, in the mission records, was using the copies of those mission records. They have copies of all mission records of all the California missions that you can use. And, and so I was there uh, doing my research and a woman came into the, um, to check on what records were available about her ancestry. And it turns out that was Ernestine de Soto, Ernestine Ignacio de Soto, who uh, had taken a class at Santa Barbara City College, a, uh, I think it was a Native American studies course. And her professors, Tina Foss uh, and Ernestine came into the Mission Archive Library. And there I was, you know, and they said, well, clean up Ernestine's ancestors. And I said, oh, well, who were Ernestine's ancestors? And she, they told me. And I said, oh, I know that family because John Harrington had worked with Ernestine's mother, Ernestine's grandmother, and Ernestine's great-grandmother. You know, he worked for three generations in that family. And Ernestine was the daughter of the last Chumash speaker, the last person to, who spoke the Barbarino Chumash language from birth or any Chumash language. She was the last speaker, uh, fluent speaker. And uh, that's why Harrington was working with her right at the end of his life, in fact. And so, uh, Ernestine and I became friends, you know, and when I was hired at the museum, that friendship continued. And um, at some point, she was invited to give a talk as part of a panel of, of Chumash women at, for an exhibit at the Carpalus Manuscript Library. They were, they were doing programming about religious, uh, about tolerance and having different ethnic communities come and, and have panel discussions. And so Ernestine was gonna be part of the panel discussion. Well, the other women for one reason or another couldn't make it. So it just came down to Ernestine. And so rather than cancel the event, she said, let's do a program uh, in which I speak in the voice of my ancestors. Okay, so I will tell the story of my ancestors as if I were that person speaking. That was the whole idea. And, but she, she could do that for her mother. For the other generations, she knew had some stories, but um, there was also the historical documents, which I was familiar with, that about that family. And so we worked collaboratively. We sat down and wrote a script together. You know, we, we had a number of meetings, writing it together uh, on the computer, public presentation, and we did it for women's studies classes, for uh, California history classes, for anthropology courses, for uh, educators we, and museums, uh, Indian conferences. We did this at a number of different venues, and someone came to hear us who was a, a cinematographer and director, uh, Paul Goldsmith, and Paul uh, said, um, I'd like to make a film based on your script. And so that became Six Generations. So the first time that the, the film was 
uh, presented was at the Museum of Natural History uh, as its debut. And then it was aired on uh, PBS for Southern California. So it was an hour long program on PBS. And from that, then a DVD was, was issued, um, not by PBS, but by uh, uh, Documentary Educational Resources. And so uh, you now can watch it free of charge at the, uh, using Canopy at the, through the Santa Barbara Public Library. You know, and, and I think through UCSB too, they used to have it through UCSB. I noticed last year that that had lapsed and I asked them to reinstate it. So I, I think the library is gonna have it again on Canopy. I'll make so, sure to have a link to include that in the description so our listeners can check that out. So as we mentioned before, uh, Dr. Johnson is currently the head anthropological curator at the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum. And I wanted to give our listeners a little bit of background because for me, this museum has a real personal connection. Um, I grew up in the Santa Barbara area and I have visited this museum probably upwards of a dozen times. So it really holds a special place in my heart. And whether it was doing a camp there in elementary school or masking up to see the outdoor butterfly exhibit during the global pandemic or taking family members from out of town, uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed this wonderful community space. And uh, I know my family members that have visited have definitely enjoyed it as well. So uh, how can you repeat how long you've been working at the Natural History Museum? I've worked at the Natural History Museum for almost 35 years now. In April, it'll be 35 years. And over that time, uh, we've continued to build our collections. Uh, we've also come into the computer age <laughs> during that time in having a, you know, a collection management system uh, that we use. So our, our records are now not only, we have paper copies, but, but more importantly now, digital copies. And uh, We've conducted research. Um, I've, I've been involved in archeological research on the uh, Santa Rosa Island, in particular Santa Cruz Island and uh, uh, Rincon Point here on the coast of Santa Barbara and uh, continue to do work in the back country as well. And uh, so I've worked you know, with California Indians and continue to work with California Indians. I've worked with a number of different tribes, not just uh, Chumash uh, tribes, but also uh, elsewhere in California as well. Uh, having been there for so many years, I'm sure it's been very rewarding to watch the exhibits grow and change. Have there been any particular developments or additions to the collections that you have overseen that were particularly exciting? Yes, there have been some really important additions to the collection. Um, gosh, where do I begin? Uh, well, a few years ago, there was an archaeologist who, on his birthday, <laughs> was on a hike, hiking trip in the backcountry. He was, he was, he and a buddy were uh, going. He loves to look at Chumash rock art rock paintings. And so he, they were looking for a site that they knew was in this particular remote area of the backcountry, And they weren't able to find it. They, they kind of were looking around for it. And he saw a big cleft in this giant sandstone outcrop. And it was lots of brambles and bush, bushes in front. And he kind of squeezed his way in and squeezed in there and turns around. And there in kind of this shelf underneath an overhang is sitting a large Chumash storage basket, just sitting there. 
They've been there undisturbed for 200 years, you know, it's 200 years. And, you know, he did what a smart archaeologist would do. He just took a picture of it, filled out a site survey record, turned that into the information center at UCSB, the archaeological information center. And then he called me (laughs) and said, (laughs) "Uh, what do I do about this? You know, it's on the national forest. And, And so I put him in touch with the the forest uh, archaeologist, the cultural resource uh, manager for the forest. And we agreed that that was probably not safe to just leave it there because the next person would not be so respectful and who knows what would become of the basket. And so we uh, organized an expedition. We waited about six months, kept it secret for six months. And then we went in and we very carefully documented it using uh, three-dimensional laser scanning. We did three-dimensional photography, photogrammetry. We documented it in situ before we ever touched the basket. And then we uh, very carefully removed it and carried it out. It was about a four-mile hike over some pretty rugged country. And we had to carry it out on a litter. <laughs> it, was, it, it turns out it's the largest Chumash basket known in existence right now. Wow. And, and uh, it was very beautiful. So we have that now on exhibit in the Chumash Hall at the museum. So that was an exciting thing to participate in. We, there are some of our exhibits, I have to say, are outdated in our exhibit hall. And they were installed in, before I got to the museum in the 1970s. And uh, we need to update those exhibits. So there's, in the future, there will be, of course, a plan to uh, renovate our exhibit hall there at the museum. But there's still some wonderful things. Mm -hmm. I don't want to discourage anyone from going there once we reopen. But uh, another major collection that came to us, (laughs) also from uh, the Kuyama region, okay? And it was, again, things that have been found in rock shelters. Uh, There was a woman and her husband, woman is now I think 90 years old, but she and her husband in 1961 were out hiking and came across a cache of baskets in a rock shelter. Not far from where this big storage basket was found. Anyway, they they went and um, got excited. And in the course of that summer, they found six different caches of perishable items that were in rock shelters. And they then built a little museum behind their house and had a little private museum where they all of these things were displayed really wonderful things and over the years archaeologists have visited that museum they published on some of the things and some years ago she now in her 80s decided that and her husband was gone she decided that uh, it was time to let go of this private museum and we got word that she was going to sell it (laughs) sell the collection and so I went and talked to her. She knew, I knew her, you know, I'd been a guest at her house a number of times. And she agreed that the museum would have the right of first refusal on this collection. So we went and I had it appraised. We then gave her the, the uh, offer based on the amount of the appraisal. And we were, um, um, we then, you know, we're able to acquire that. We had then had a fundraising effort for about a year and a half. And people, oh, maybe 30, 40 different people uh, donated funds 
uh, for us to be able to then purchase the collection. And uh, so that also is in, like, on exhibit now, part pieces from that. And it includes an arrow making kit. Oh, wow. And snares. It was, it was, it was the possessions of a man who was evidently a, a trapper and a hunter. And he cashed away belongings and rolled up in a Thule mat, all the things needed to make an arrows. And ordinarily an archeologist, you know, all this stuff would be in an open air site would be destroyed, mm -hmm. you know, moisture and other things, but in a dry cave, it preserved. And so we have that on exhibit now in our uh, Chumash Hall. That's wonderful. I know one of my favorite artifacts from the Chumash Hall is the, um, the boat that hangs from the ceiling that they put together using tar. And, you know, these boats, they would, um, from all the way from the Channel Islands, which are how many miles off the coast? Do you know? Well, what, our Channel Islands are what? 25, 30 miles, something like okay. that. Just for our listeners that might not, you know, know our area. So there's um, islands just about 25 miles off the coast and they would, um, they would trade and they would go across in these boats. And there's a really lovely one that's hanging in the Natural History Museum that I know I love so much. <laughs> we, we actually have two uh, replica uh, canoes, plank canoes, or Tomal was the Chumash name for these. Uh, one of them was made in 1976 by my predecessor, uh, Travis Hudson, who, who built that one based on the notes of John Harrington. Okay. But then there's also another one in our Chumash Hall uh, that was uh, built for John Harrington in 1913 uh, by under the direction of an elderly Chumash man who, as a boy, he was probably the last, well, by the time Harrington worked with him, he's the last living person who had actually helped build these boats, seen them in the water, and knew he, how they were constructed. As a teenager, he'd helped some of the old-time canoe makers make these tomals. And so Fernando Librado is his name. Uh, Fernando Librado showed Harrington how to make that one that's in our Chumash Hall. And so that is the boat that they built together in 1913. And that was only formally transferred to our museum just a few years ago. It was on loan for all these years uh, that it was, it's been on exhibit. Uh, since the 1970s, it's been on exhibit in our Chumash Hall, but didn't belong to us, right? It was made for uh, the exhibition in the 19, well, the early 20th century down in San Diego, the Bill Exp Exposition Park down in San Diego. And it was part of the Museum of Man's collection in San Diego. But they came and they had a meeting with Chumash representatives at our museum and said, what do you want to see happen to this plank canoe? And they said, they all agreed that, the, that it should be formally transferred to us, you know. Um, and so with their permission, that was what happened. Well, I'm glad to learn more about the story of that uh, canoe and then also that, you know, it's great to hear that you consult, you know, with the local Chumash uh, surviving members that are still, you know, have that uh, cultural connection with, with these artifacts. I think that's obviously super, super important of um, creating ethical museums, which is obviously very important in today's day and age. Um, so I think the last question that I have for you is what does your day-to-day -day look like as a curator at the museum in non-pandemic times? Things are a little different right now. 
Well, I would say my time is sort of divided into normal administrative tasks that you have to do just mm -hmm. as whatever job you, you have, uh, you know, managing the department there at the museum. Mentioned as my day-to-day -day job, of course, is our managing our collections mm -hmm. at the museum. And so that's, of course, a big part of our work too, is cataloging collections, you know, accepting donations when people come and bring us things that, that mm -hmm. belong in museums, but they're in their personal possessions and uh, that they want to save for posterity. Uh, so for example, a woman just last week donated us a wonderful old basket from Southern California, not from Chumash, but from elsewhere in Southern California. So that's a big part of our, our job too, is, is, is managing the collections. We also manage collections that are from Los Padres National Forest, and from Channel Islands National Park. So both the Park Service and the Forest Service have cooperative agreements with us and that we then manage their collections for them and keep them in, in good condition. Well, at any museum, one of the main purposes for your existence is uh, public education, you know, and so a lot of my, and public outreach, so a lot of my job day to day is just answering questions from the public, interacting with members of the public, interacting with uh, school teachers, with um, giving talks to avocational societies, to the Rotary Club, to different other organizations. Um, I work a lot with Native Americans. You know, uh, that's that's really part of the job too. It's something other museum departments don't really have. Um, you know, a group that is definitely so closely related to their collections. I mean, these are heritage mm -hmm. of Chumash Indians, right, that we manage. So uh, we work with those people. Um, we work with Chumash Indians and other California Indians. And the uh, third thing is I can do some research pertaining to what topics I want to pursue. And uh, so um, I've already told you about uh, some of my research projects. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today and, you know, public outreach, that's what we love to do on the podcast and bringing light to, you know, the fascinating developments in anthropology, but also fascinating institutions such as the Santa Barbara Natural History Museum. And I look forward to the day that it can reopen and, you know, maybe some of our listeners can go visit. I definitely would recommend it. It's a lovely place. One of my favorite things that is non-anthropologically related is the as uh, the um the crystals exhibit the gemstones those are oh, fascinating i've loved them since i was little i'd go in there and i'd like touch the amethyst that's like in the in the nook in the cranny and yeah it's a great museum so thank you very much for your time that's great um so I'm gonna, this, that episode will end there, but I do, if you're willing, um, I have partnered with the American Anthropological Association. I'm part of their podcast team and uh, they're advertising Anthro Day on February 18th. They're gonna do like a good public outreach. So um, I'm gonna put together a bonus episode that is gonna be a compilation of some of my guests, some of like my personal stories, one of my professors who I'm really close with, just talking about, it's gonna be a little mini episode, just like why we love anthropology, what are really cool 
experiences have been in anthropology. So um, if you would like to participate in that episode as well, I'll kind of kind of give you an open-ended question of what do you love about being an anthropologist or kind of a spin, what has been um, the most impactful experience you've had as an anthropologist, if you'd like to articulate that, because I think obviously we have really eye-opening cultural moments um, as anthropologists. So if you'd like to take that stance, um, that would be great as well. Uh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I'd be happy to participate. Or, great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'll just ask. Let me, let me just check that date. Is it going to be on that date that we participate? The, no, um, I can. We can do it right now. I just won't include oh, it in the okay. epi- This episode, I'll save okay. it for and release it on February eighteenth. Okay. Great. So um, I'll kind of o- ask it as an open-ended question, and feel free to um, answer might- as li- little or oh, as. There's a motor in the background because I think um, the um, the guy who just is doing the work at is leaving right now, so I can hear okay. it. I don't know whether you can hear it, but there's. A, I can hear it a little bit. Yeah, he's going to be leaving here momentarily. He just left the bill on the door. So I have to. Yeah. That's fine. Um, well, I can tell you while we wait, I can tell you a little bit about um, me since I got to interview you and I'm starting to realize that my guests that haven't met me before, I spend the whole time interviewing them. And then afterwards, they're like, who is this person that has interviewed me? Um, I, uh, I'm i really passionate in physical anthropology. So I uh, intend to pursue graduate school next year in forensics and forensic anthropology. And I've done a lot of work, um, you know, with, with bones, I've been work helping excavate in Montecito, uh, to hopefully recover the remains of a boy who was lost during the mudslides. Oh, yes. Yeah. Did they find the remains? We have not, we have found tons of debris flow, you know, we're definitely in an area that uh, has, has re- uh, remnants from, from the mudslides. Um, and we found items from his bedroom. So we are hopeful, but I mean, as I'm sure you can imagine, cause you were here during everything that happened, it was so much force that, you know, we hoped that we would be able to find perhaps a part of him, but we also, um, you know, we're trying to remain optimistic, but also cautiously optimistic that, you know, if, if we do find something, it may be a piece rather than Right. Um, his whole skeleton. Yeah, so tragic. Yeah. 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 It's been really special though to work with his mom and work with other search and rescue, the fire department that, you know, that were there on the ground looking when it first happened. Uh, it's been a really good, I think, community effort rather than just UCSB, just search and rescue. I think, you know, now it's, everyone's kind of come together and it's been mm-hmm. a good experience. Yeah. yeah. Good. good. All right. So let's. I don't hear the motor anymore. So I think he we're good. Just yeah. He just okay. Left. All right. So 